Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. I want to remind you again, men's ministry tomorrow night, 7 p.m., room right behind me. Romans chapter 6. And I'm in verse 15, and I'll read through verse 18. Romans 6, verse 15. What then shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as uh, slaves for uh, obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So again, we're returning to this study here in the book of Romans. It's just, as I said this morning, it's a tremendous portion of Scripture. It talks about the doctrine of sanctification. And that's the process where the redeemed, the justified, the true believer in Christ, is being separated from sin unto holiness and into righteousness. Someone has defined it as this. Sanctification is the continuing operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, making us holy by conforming our character, affection, and behavior to the image of Christ. That's a good definition. Now, as we've been working our way through the book of Romans, we've seen that justification is God declaring us not guilty and positively righteous in Christ. And we've seen that justification breaks our old relationship with Adam and brings us into full union with Christ. Therefore, because of that reality, uh, we are truly saved, right? We're no longer who we once were. All things are different because now we're in Christ and we're in union with Christ, united with Christ. And for every person who's genuinely justified, every person who's a true believer in Christ, that process of sanctification begins there at salvation. Justification and sanctification cannot be divided. You can't be a genuine believer and have one without the other. In Christ, again, justification is more than just a legal transaction. It is that. But for, uh, in, biblically, justification is a reality, right? Those who are truly saved, for those who are truly saved, there's an actual transformation of life that begins, a changed life. Because, again, the Bible says we're now new creatures in Christ, new creations in Christ. And, again, we're continually, progressively looking more and more like our Savior. Therefore, there's an absolute distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. That's why Paul says, look in verse 11, he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? Uh, uh, that that uh, believer that considers himself dead to sin, who understands what God has done for him in Christ, a believer who understands that, that he is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, is going to continue by practice of his life to flee from all unrighteousness and is going to pursue holiness. It's a transformation of life, right? Because of our union with Christ. Because of our union with Christ, we're going to take practical steps to make sure that we live like freed men, right? No longer under sin's domination. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Again, the penalty has been paid for by Christ. The power of sin has been broken, again, by Christ. Sin no longer has the right to rule over us. Sin no longer has the, the right or the dominion over us or the right or the power to control us. So we have to realize that. Therefore, we have to act, verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body as to, to sin 
as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Again, God is the issue here. It's not, it's not you, it's God, right? God the Father sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Why did he do that? To forgive us of our sins, that's, that's true. But to, to save us from the, the slavery of sin, that again, we would no longer in life allow sin to use us. So again, in verse 13, there's a negative and a positive command. We're no longer to present our body as to, bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather, we are now in Christ, united with Christ, justified. We are to present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead. We, we're to be available for God's use, not sin's use. So that's what God is doing in us, right? Justification declares us just, absolutely positively righteous in Christ, and in the process of transforming us, conforming us to the image of his Son. The Lord Jesus Christ, or God himself, the Father, God and the Father, is in the, in the world working to destroy the works of the devil. Right? He, he's in a constant fight with the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, sin and all of its power. Therefore, as we who are believers in Christ, we've been set free from once who we were in Adam. Therefore, we should not be a part of anything that God stands in opposition against. Right? We should not be in cahoots with anything that uh, that old power uh, once had over us that we were delivered from. Right? And again, the activity that God is actively opposed to and the activity God that is actively opposed to is sin. So again, it's emancipation for the Christian. Right? Paul's not asking you to do anything. He's just asking you to realize the reality of who you are and now live like freed men because God has freed you in Christ. God has set you free from that old man, Adam. And we should be positively and actively pursuing righteousness and holiness, right? Again, if we have been freed... If the old man Adam is dead in the grave, buried, why would we want to dig him up, right? Why, why would we ever want to go back to that old person, dig him up out of the grave, put him on again, and live in that kind of corruption? Uh, again, the, the whole idea is r ridiculous. To paraphrase Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as I quoted last week, when it comes to the issue of sin in our lives, we need to stop being so subjective. Okay, we need to stop being so subjective we need to stop feeling so miserable and talking about our weakness and how I, how I can't overcome and I'm just struggling and all that kind of stuff. Okay, got it. Get over it. Right? Not, I'm not very, you're not very nice. Not, I'm just trying to help you out here. I'm trying to tell you reality, right? What did Lloyd-Jones say? He says, when it comes to the issue of sin in your life, you need to stand up and be men. You are those who have now been enlisted in the army of God. You're called to fight against sin, to resist sin, to resist all unrighteousness. And you need to listen to the voice of the sergeant, ma sergeant major, as it were, shouting the commands of God to us that says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Right? He's saying, look, you've got to live out the reality of who you are. Stop being so subjective. Live out the reality of who you are in Christ. Realize again that slaves who've been set free, God's offering you freedom. Take that freedom. Don't go back to bondage. Present yourself to God. You have a choice, right? Before you didn't have a choice. I'll talk more about that later, but now you have a choice. Present yourself to God. Stand against, fight against sin, fight against the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil with all your might, and serve God. Verse 14. I mean, verse 14 is just tremendous. For sin shall not be master over you. That's a tremendous truth and a positive statement. He's telling us what is true of us now, what is going to be true of us in the future. Sin will not be master over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. Right? Sin will not be a master of you. That's a reality. 
Now, to be under the law means that you're still trying to attempt to justify yourself before God in his presence. You're doing some kind of work, some kind of not, you know, doing something or not doing something, your own works, your own actions, your own deeds. And you're trying to rest on your own personal conformity to the law as your acceptance before God. But the Bible says repeatedly that a man who does that is under condemnation. Right? The man who's under the law is under condemnation. Again, Romans 3 and 20, By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? And Paul says you're no longer under the law. Right? As a redeemed individual, justified by God's grace, you're under grace, right? Because of God's kindness. You're under the realm, the rule, the authority of the blessing of God, the favor of God. We stand before God justified not by our own efforts, but justified because of the blood of Christ. By the mercy of Christ, the kindness of Christ. Freely forgiven, fully justified, fully reconciled. Again, never to face condemnation. Because now we've got a transformed life, a changed life, a forgiven life. And sin is no longer to be the master over the believer. And again, as we are <clears throat> becoming more and more conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we'll see that, all right? We'll see that we are being made more like him in our thinking, our actions, our activities, right? Again, it's all because of God's great grace and kindness to us. Verse 15 says, What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And again, may it never be. Now, as we come to the text tonight, because verse 15 is where we're starting here, some have called this perhaps the greatest, most important section in all the New Testament. And, and I wouldn't argue with that. This portion of Scripture, again, is very clear and definitive. Uh, it's a very clear and very definitive section that describes what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a true believer in Christ. And a true believer in Christ, a genuine Christian, is someone who has received the greatest gift that could ever be given fallen man, and that's not just forgiveness of sin. The greatest gift that God can give to us is freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. It's a gift that he offers to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Freedom from sin. Freedom from sin's penalty. Freedom from sin's power. And one day the promise is in glory, freedom from sin's very presence. It is an unsurpassable gift of God's grace towards mankind. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. He's going to continue to talk about the issue of sanctification. And he's going to remind Christians, uh, the believer who's listening, reading the book, to remind the Christian of their past enslavement to sin. And then to remind them, to remind us of our new enslavement to righteousness because of their transformation, our transformation, because of our trust in Christ, because of our union with the person of Jesus Christ. So the primary point of all these verses all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 23, is that a believer in Christ should live in total subjection to Christ and total subjection to his righteousness and not fall back into his or her former ways of life, former lives of sin, because that life no longer has a claim over us in Christ. Again, this is all positional truth that needs to be lived out in reality. Now you have to understand the truth and then act upon the truth. One writer says this, because they are the Christians have died to sin, or died in Christ to sin, and risen with him to righteousness, they are no longer under the lordship of sin, but now are under the lordship of righteousness, because the Christian is in a new relationship with God, and also a new relationship to sin. Therefore, for the first time, he is not, he is able not to live sinfully, and able to also for the first time live righteously. I mean, that's just a tremendous statement. We're in a new relationship with God, a new relationship to sin. Again, before Christ, all we did was sin and sin and sin. 
in Christ, changed, transformed, forgiven, given a new life, old guy dead, buried, leaving there. Now you have the ability to obey. So this portion of scripture is going to talk about sin and slavery, righteousness and obedience. Those are the themes that are going to keep coming up. Sin and slavery, righteousness and obedience. Now, of course, sin is the most debilitating, devastating, degenerating power that's ever entered humanity, right? Sin has corrupted the entire creation. Sin is rebellion. It's the trampling of God's word. It's breaking God's law. It's violating God's standard. Sin is defiling. Uh, the Bible says sin is like an oozing sore, a polluting of the soul, defiling, defiling the flesh and the spirit, the mind and the conscience. It's sin that pollutes, scars, and stains the image of God. Sin is, is defiance. Sin stands up in opposition to God and says, I will not do what you command me to do. I don't care what your claims are of being God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Sin wants to not only unthrone God, but sin wants to un-God God. If the sinner had his way, there'd be no God but the sinner himself. And that's the way unbelievers practically live. There's no God but me. Someone has called sin God's would-be murderer. If sin had its way, uh, it would destroy God along with God's righteousness. Sin is ingratitude and ungratefulness. Sin refuses to acknowledge God as the source of all good things. Sin takes from God and never acknowledges him as the source of everything good. Again, our very life, our very breath, our existence, right? Sin indulgence, uh, indulges in God's gracious provision, but again, fails to thank God. It fails to appreciate God or credit God for all those things. Sin takes all the blessings from God and then uses it to... Uh, those blessings to serve self and Satan. Sin, in essence, spits in God's face, slaps him, and then plots out treason to overthrow him again in the sinner's life. And the Bible tells us, of course, sin is humanly incurable. Sin can't be legislated out. It can't be a philosophized away. Psychology can't deal with the problem of sin. Sin can't be washed away, pushed out by any kind of self-effort. Sin is hated by God. Sin brings God's wrath. Sin brings forth God's judgment. Sin alienates the sinner from God. Therefore, the question is, how could it ever be that a Christian who's died to sin because of the person of Jesus Christ ever want to go back and be in that relationship with such a heinous, monstrous thing as sin? Why would you ever want to go back and have anything to do with it? Right? So sin, devastating. The portion of scripture we're going to look into talks about slavery. From verse 15 through 23, slavery is going to be used seven times the word enslaved is used once so in these few verses there's eight references uh to to uh to slavery in just these few verses and, and slavery or the word slave is trans uh, translated from the greek word doulos and again that's a dominating theme that unites the whole portion of scripture before us the whole section and what's a slave well a slave is somebody who gives himself completely to a master a slave gives himself completely to a master now, the word slave is different in the New Testament than the word servant. Slaves were lower than servants. A servant is somebody who had uh, at least a degree of freedom to come and go. They could accept a job, not accept a job. They could own property. They could receive wages. They could go home at the end of the day. The word servant, uh, uh, we would get our English word deacon from. Uh, a servant was somebody who attended the needs of others, someone uh, who uh, still, however, had their own power of freedom in their life. They could do things their own way, go their own way. They could return the next day to work if they wanted to or not go to work and let somebody else take that job, right? But not, not so with slave. Slave is a completely different category, doulos. A slave is completely different. A slave has no personal freedom to do as they please. Their entire life is given to servitude to a master who paid the price to purchase them from another. A servant was hired, but a slave was owned. 
So again, slaves, again, they have no independence. They have no self-autonomy, no personal rights, no protection. They were treated with no kindness. They were often abused, often brutalized, beaten, and often many of them were killed by their own masters. And slaves, again, were seen as nothing more than property of, uh, of another, owned by someone else. Slaves were seen nothing more as living tools. They had no better or no more, more rights than any other tool in your tool shed, no more rights than your shovel or your rake or your hoe. Slaves were seen as no better than just a beast of burden with the exception they just happened to have the ability to talk. So again, was a per- when a person was owned as a slave, that meant they were in the possession of his master, bound to obey him. There's no negotiation going on here between a master and a slave, what that person could do or could not do. Slaves were expected to give complete, instantaneous, total subjection, submission with swift obedience to the master, <clears throat> no matter what the master commanded. The master, again, has complete rights over the slave, even the power of death. Now, I understand it's difficult for us to grasp the meaning of a slave because I'm assuming that nobody in the room here has ever been a slave. Nobody in the room has ever been owned by another, right, the slave of a master. But we have to come to some better understanding of the idea of slavery because the concept is used in the text because, again, what Paul wants us to understand is the concept of slavery, which everybody in the time which he writes understands, but a slave was owned by somebody else, owned by a master. That, to that person, he must render complete obedience, complete unfeigned obedience. Now, Paul, again, understands that issue in the day, day in which he writes because slavery is very common uh, in the Roman Empire. It's been estimated by some that there were perhaps up to 60 million slaves at the time that Paul writes. Perhaps half of the population uh, was enslaved. And people became slaves by a variety of reasons, sometimes by birth, sometimes by prison, becoming prisoners of war, or sometimes as convicts, or sometimes debt. You'd sell yourself into slavery to pay off your debt. Sometimes people kidnapped you and put you into slavery, uh, etc. and so forth. Slavery was so much a part of the culture at the time in which Paul writes this letter that more than likely, most certainly, there must have been a large number of slaves who are part of the church at Rome. So everybody to whom Paul is writing understands the concept of slavery. In fact, it's interesting, Paul himself, actually, when he writes the letter in the introduction, he identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 1, as a slave of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Now, bondservant is a poor translation. We've talked about this in the past times. It's a poor translation because it's actually the Greek word doulos, which means literally slave. And historically, there was such a negative connotation or stigma attached with slavery that many of the translators refused to use that word and used they, 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 instead they choose, chose a different word, bondservant, as a way to kind of soften down the word or tone down the word. But Paul doesn't soften it or tone it down. He understands slavery completely. And he intentionally uses the word doulos when he describes himself in his relationship to Christ because he understood that he'd been bought with a price by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now Christ owned him. He is Christ's slave. His entire life, once he's purchased by Christ, his entire life is given over to his master. Paul understood that Christ bought him at the cross, and now the Lord controlled him, the Lord governed him, right? And Paul was to devote the rest of his life in complete, uh, again, devotion uh, to Christ and to Christ completely. And that's what Paul did as a believer. He submitted himself entirely to the will of God. He gave himself up to the sovereign a lordship of Christ, and that's the call for every genuine believer in Christ. Our entire existence on earth is to be lived in compliance, submission, surrender, complete obedience to 
the supreme authority in our lives, and that supreme authority is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, believer, a believer, a genuine believer recognizes that. A genuine believer recognizes that they have been bought with a price. They're not their own. They belong to somebody else. They've been redeemed, ransomed, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved them. He saved us out of the slave market of sin. And again, he bought us for himself, to himself, by his precious blood. So now we're a purchased possession of Christ, released from our former life of sin, our former life of slavery to sin. We've been bought by a different master, and again, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'm going to tell you this. It's a reality. There's nobody in the world that's not a slave. There's nobody in this world that is not a slave. The truth biblically is you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave to Christ. There's no other category. Nobody in the world that's not a slave. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. There's no other option. And we need to desperately, as believers, understand that truth, that reality. The delusion that man is free, that he can choose his own destiny, is a satanic lie foisted upon man all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And Paul's going to point that out in this section. He's going to say again, over and over again, you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of God. You're a slave of righteousness. You're a slave of obedience. Again, someone has once said that unbelievers mistakenly think they're free to cast God off and follow their own lust, but in reality, they're slaves of corruption. Everybody's a slave. There's no such thing as true freedom. I don't care what it says on the billboard outside the the Baptist church when you drive out to wherever, right? How many times have you seen that sign? Freedom Baptist Church, Free Will Baptist Church, whatever. That's not biblical. Nobody in the world's free. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, free will I have often heard of, but I have never seen it. I have met will and plenty of it, but it's either been led captive by sin or held in the blessed bonds of grace. Douglas Moo, a modern commentator, says this in his commentary. He says, The choice is not, should I give up my freedom so that I could submit to God? Rather, it is, should I serve sin or should I serve God? Those are the choices. Right? There's no such thing as freedom. The great theologian and culture, cultural poet, Bob Dylan, who I like because he's one of the few people I can harmonize with, wrote a song back in the 70s, late 70s, called Gotta Serve Somebody, and the refrain went like this. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, if Bob Dylan can get it, most anybody can get it, right? That's the reality of life. You're going to have to serve somebody. You're either going to serve and be a slave of sin, which results in death, or... You're going to be a slave of obedience, which results in righteousness. Those are the choices. Those are the choices. You're either going to serve and be a slave of sin, which results in death, or you're going to be a slave of obedience, which results in righteousness. Now, while the theme slavery is very much, again, in the forefront of these verses, there's also other words that keep repeating themselves. Words like obedience, obedient, obey. These occur four times in these verses, and that's because that's exactly what slaves do. They obey. So the ultimate question is, whose slave are you? Whose slave are you? Who do you obey? Do you obey sin or do you obey a God? 
because again, there's no other options, no other options available. Again, the unbeliever mistakenly believes that they are free when they cast off God and follow their own lust. But again, the truth is they have just enslaved themselves to corruption. But God has freed us in Christ. That's what it says, right? God has freed us in Christ from sin, Romans six eighteen. Not to live as we please, but rather to he frees us from sin to make us slaves of righteousness, right? And, and again, righteousness is another important uh, word that repeats itself. So again, the question is, whose slave are you? Now, there's a, slim, a similarity here when we start into verse 15 between here and the top of the chapter. You've probably seen it. The question asked back in chapter 1 is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And that phrase, continue in sin, is the present tense, meaning a life of habitual sin. Verse 15 says, what shall we say? Or what then shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. So Paul is anticipating there's going to be an argument from an antagonist who's going to come and say, well, just uh, as, because he's just in verse 14 declared that we're not under the law, but under grace. He's going to anticipate an argument that's going to come, that somebody's going to put forth an idea. Of course, it's a wrong idea. It goes something along this lines: If salvation is apart from works, then I have no obligation to do any good works. They're going to say, well, look, if I'm saved without obeying the law, if I'm justified, justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, then I have no obligation to obey the law. Therefore, as a Christian, I can simply do whatever I want. I can live in any fashion I desire. I can even sin because God's grace is going to cover all of my sin. Again, that kind of line, uh, kind of the whole line of thinking is an anathema. And Paul answers that fallacious line of thinking by that phrase at the end of verse 15, meganoito, may it never be. Again, it's the strongest form of negation in the Greek. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, a thousand times over, no, absolutely not. So again, shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace, may it never be. Again, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that that grace may increase? And again, the same answer comes in verse 2, may it never be. How shall we decide die to sins to live in So the mere suggestion of a believer continuing in sin so that grace may increase shows the utter wickedness of the heart. It's trying to find an excuse to sin. It's nothing more than an evidence of an unregenerated heart, right? The the, the idea that we're not under the law, but under grace, shall we continue to sin? Again, gives that same evidence of an unregenerated heart, right? What then, Paul says, verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? So can the true believer continue in a habitual lifestyle of sin? Can the habitual practice of sin be the thrust of our life now in Christ? Can we who are born again still live in sin, still love our sin? Can a true believer continue a life as they once did apart from Christ in the same relationship to sin? And again, the answer is may it never be. No, 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 right? A thousand times again, over, no. Because the mere suggestion again that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, is licensed to sin, is self-contradictory. It's both immoral uh, uh, and spiritually, logically absurd. Because what's the purpose of God sending grace into the world? The purpose of God sending his grace into the world is to free us from sin. So if God's purpose of sending grace into the world is free us from sin, how in the world could grace ever possibly be used as justify a justification to sin? The answer is it can't, Right? Again, the very idea that, that grace is licensed to sin and that releases us from the obligation to be holy is absurd. You can, because again, God gives his grace into the world to free us from the bondage of sin. Grace not only justifies, but it transforms the life of the saved individual. 
And again, a life that gives no evidence of moral, spiritual transformation gives no evidence of genuine salvation because that's what God has done through Christ. He has freed us from sin. He's transformed our life. So again, the very purpose of the gospel, the very purpose of the gospel of grace is to free men from the tyranny of sin. So again, grace can never justify continuing sin or energizing sin. Grace can never justify deliberate, habitual, persistent sin in a person's life. Now I want to stop for a moment and acknowledge the fact that I get it, that understanding this maybe is difficult. Uh, understanding the law and grace is often a difficult uh, theological issue for people to get a grip on because there's normally two extremes that uh, often live under uh, this uh, banner of law and grace that need to be avoided. There's some people who fear that if you emphasize God's grace too much, then people are going to fall into sin and licentiousness, right? Liberty to do whatever they want, right? So what they want to do is those people who fear grace is they want to put people back under the law. They want to bring them back under the law. They want to emphasize rules that, that they consider to be holy living. Now, most of the time, they're not biblical commands, but they're just conservative cultural norms, man-made rules, Man-made rules, right? Legalists don't focus on the issues of the heart, but they focus on outward sin. How you dress, right? How you dress, uh, what you eat, how long your hair is, your dress length as a woman, right? Outward legalistic rules. That's exactly what the Pharisees did, right? The Pharisees, the, the, the Judaizers did. Again, they were the leading proponents of uh, false superficial spirituality and they're always focused on the externals. Do these things. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those people who are under grace, and they say, well, since I'm under grace, sin doesn't matter. Right? And these people view God as this loving, old, grandfatherly kind of a figure, this grandfather in the sky who would never judge anybody, so they make the mistake that God is really not concerned about your sin, which leads to licentiousness. Do whatever you want. You're under grace, God doesn't care. Stephen Cole, he offers a tremendously helpful analysis, and I'm going to present it to you here. He says this, It's important to understand that God's true grace is not the balance point between legalism and licentiousness. Rather, legalism and licentiousness are two sides of the same coin whose operating principle is the flesh. That's a tremendous observation. Legalism and licentiousness are two sides of the same coin whose operating principle is uh, of the flesh. The legalist, acting on the flesh, takes pride in his religious practices. He condemns those who do not match up to his standards of righteousness, while he congratulates himself on his performance. He imagines that by keeping the law, he can commend himself to God, but he's operating in the flesh. He's not examining his heart before God. He says, and it's obvious that the licentious person is operating in the flesh, giving in to the lust of the flesh, justifying it by equating grace with tolerance for sin. So both legalism and licentiousness stem from sinful flesh. Cole says, God's grace is opposed to both of these, not as the balance point, but as a completely different way of relating to God. He says, as we've seen, preaching God's grace always exposes us to the charge of licentiousness from the legalists. From the legalists. It happened to Jesus, it happened to Paul, and it'll happen to us. But those making the charge do not understand grace at all as Paul's strong reaction, may it never be, uh, shows. If we have responded to the good news that God freely justifies the ungodly through faith alone, apart from works, 
then we will hate the sin that put our Savior on the cross. That's a tremendous statement. If we truly understand the good news, right, that God freely justifies the ungodly through faith alone, apart from works, then we will uh, hate the sin that put our Savior on the cross. We are now identified with him in his death to sin and resurrection to new life. That new life with us manifests itself in obedience to God, as Paul's going to show us in Romans 6, 19. Lawlessness, he says, is the mark of the slave of sin. Righteousness is the mark of the one who has received God's grace. God's grace transforms and changes us. God has set us free, right? I'm not trapped in legalism. I'm not trapped in licentiousness. I'm trapped in love. Why would I ever want to do anything to put my dear Lord and Savior upon the cross? Why would I want to have any part of that in my life anymore? That's what he's saying. It's tremendous. Tremendous idea. Tremendous truth. What then shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. And again, may it never be. So again, the man who understands God's grace understands also that one day he's going to stand in God's very presence. Right? I mean, if we're, we're justified, sanctified, glorified, we're going to stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to see him one day. So what's the ultimate motivation in my life? Well, my ultimate motivation in my life is that I'm going to stand before the Holy God. I'm going to stand before a Holy God I'm going to see Christ, I'm going to be in his presence, and I'm going to give an account for my life. That's motivation. That's motivation for what you do, what you fail to do. So again, as you begin to see what God has done for you in Christ, you begin to see what sin is, you begin to see that you hate sin, right? You're going to hate sin more and more in your life. You're going to do whatever it takes to turn your back upon sin. You're going to resist the devil, and you're going to flee from all unrighteousness. Because again... Grace frees us. Grace transforms our life completely. If a person's life gives no evidence of spiritual transformation, then it's a, then it's a life that gives no evidence of genuine salvation because Christ saves his people from their sins. I told you a few weeks ago, that's why when we do our new members class, we don't just ask, when did you get saved? How did you get saved? It's usually, when did you get saved? That's the person, when, when were you saved? Well, I was saved at two or one or, I don't know, maybe six months. Um, you know, uh, no, no. I, I, what I want to know, the question we ask here is since you have come to Christ, you made a claim that you've come to Christ, what I want to know is tell me how Christ has changed your life. And, and, and the, the reality is if he has not, then you don't have a genuine claim to faith. I, I never, I never said perfection here, right? Haven't I said that three or four times in this study the last few weeks? I'm not talking about perfection, but some kind of change, some kind of difference in your life. The Scripture again commands us over and over again to examine ourselves, see if we are indeed who we claim to be. Second Corinthians thirteen five: Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself that Christ Jesus is in you? Dash, unless indeed you fail the test. If you are in Christ, if Christ is in you, I guarantee you, you do not look like the person you were before. You do not look like the fallen world around you. Didn't say perfect, but you're different at some level. Now, Paul's going to ask a question. It's really an axiom. It's a rhetorical question. And really, he's going to present an axiom. And all an axiom is is the truth that's so evident, self-evident, really doesn't need any proof. He's going to bring a picture. Again, it's an analogy drawn from common life that everybody in the time that he's writing, would have understood. And again, it comes from the culture, and he uses the analogy of slavery, verse 16. 
Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Right? Do you not know? So again, that phrase simply means that his readers would have already acknowledged the truth of what he's uh, saying. In essence, he could even paraphrase it like this, as everybody knows. That's really what he's saying, as everybody knows. Right? Because again, more than likely, there are believers in the church of Rome that, have, uh, that, are, are, that are slaves themselves. Do you not know, or of course you do, really, that when you present yourselves, and the idea of presenting yourselves means of will, willingly act of choice, willingly, actively choosing to be bound to another, to be in the control of another. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as some, to, uh, to somebody as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now again, note the word obedience, the word obey, and the word slaves, it's used twice. And again, that's exactly what slaves do, slaves obey. Slaves give themselves up fully, uh, give themselves up fully and freely to the desires of their master. And in verse 16, there are five great truths that uh, come out. I only have time to give you the headings. I'll give you the headings. You'll see them. Again, number one, I said it earlier, but I'll say it just a little bit different. Uh, everybody is not his own, but a slave to his master. There's nobody free. Everybody is not his own, but a slave to his master. Now, again, I understand the natural man doesn't like that, but nevertheless, it's true. Again, the natural man, the unsaved man, is under the delusion that they are free, that they can choose their own destiny. That's a satanic lie, again, foisted upon mankind that men still believe, foisted upon mankind from the Garden of Eden forward. The Bible says, again, every man, every woman born in this world is a slave. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to somebody as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And again, the Bible teaches there's only two choices of slavery. When you present yourself to somebody... Uh, someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, either of sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. Those are the choices. So all men, every man, every man, every woman, is either a slave of sin, or they're a slave of, of uh, obedience, a slave of grace. The unbeliever is a slave uh, of sin. The unregenerate man is a slave of sin. He's a slave to sin. He obeys his master, and he does nothing but sin. He sins, he sins, he sins. And the result will be both physical and spiritual death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The man, however, who's under grace, he is now a slave of obedience. His master leads him to righteousness and everlasting life. Right? The master of the unregenerate is going to lead his slave to death, both physical and eternal. And again, by the way, the Bible, when it speaks of death, doesn't mean the end of existence. The Bible teaches very plainly that there's a physical, that physical death doesn't mean we cease to exist, but physical death just transforms us or uh, uh, transports us from one realm to another. The Bible clearly teaches that there's a place of eternal conscious punishment and torment for those who have lived their lives of slaves of sin and have rejected God's mercy and grace through Christ. Now, the opposite of slavery that leads to death is a slavery that leads to obedience. And that results in righteousness, and the master of the slave of obedience leads his servants to life, eternal life. Right? Eternal life, it's eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
So again, principle number one, everybody's a slave to a master. Principle number two, again, a self-evident truth, there are two great powers that are anxious to possess people, all people. Two great powers. Again, self-evident. You just look out of the page. One is sin, one is obedience. And again, no man goes unclaimed because all are slaves. No man goes unclaimed. Every man is going to be possessed by one of these two great powers. When you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. The third truth, self-evident truth, these two powers are in complete opposition to one another. They're complete antithesis. They're bitterly and violently uh, eternally opposed. One produces always death and destruction. The other produces life and righteousness. They're in complete opposition. Self-evident truth number four, no man can be a slave of both. Right? You can't be a slave to two masters. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Matthew 6, 24, says no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. So no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve sin and serve obedience at the same time. Number five, a person, uh, the, the, a person proclaims his allegiance by what he does, right, or how he acts. A person proclaims his allegiance by what he does or how he acts. So the true person's master is not who he says it is. The issue is whom does he obey? Who do you obey? Whose slave are you? Because everybody's a slave. Right? You've got everybody's a slave, two great powers. Everybody's going to be possessed by one of these powers in their life. The powers are in complete opposition to other. You can't serve one and the other. You can't be a slave of sin and a slave of, uh, of obedience. And again, your allegiance is not evidenced by just what you say. It's by the one you obey. Your, your allegiance is to the one whom you obey. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Therefore, the man who says he's a believer in Jesus Christ, who says that Jesus is his Savior, yet that man can, that man, and that man continues to live in a habitual pattern of sin. Listen, that man is lying. The man who claims to be a follower of Christ and lives a habitual pattern of sin, that, ma- that man is lying. He's either lying to you or he's lying to himself or he's lying to both. Because a man who claims to be a follower of Christ living in a habitual pattern of sin is giving evidence of the fact that his life is not under grace. Because God will not and God would not allow a true believer to be mastered by sin. Did I not read that? Sin will not be master over you. You know what that means in the Greek? It means means sin will not be master over you. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to deliver men from sin, not to keep them in bondage to sin. And I've told you this before, I've preached that previously, and I've been called a heretic for preaching that. And I'm like, a heretic? I was expecting a pat on the back or a badge or something, and you just hit me with a stick. I just gave you the greatest good news that Jesus Christ sets his people free from sin. And then I get all these people going, wow, you don't understand, and you're not really true. And I mean, no, I understand what it says. It says exactly what it says. He's come to deliver. He's come to transform our life, to set us free. And you go, but I struggle all the time. I got that. So did Paul, chapter 7. Wait, we'll get to it. 
We're not talking about chapter 7. We're talking about chapter 6. We're talking about you need to understand what the Bible says, and you need to live in obedience to the truth and a reality of who you are before we can get to the whatevers and yes, but, and what, all that kind of stuff. That'll come later. But you've got to understand the foundation. You've got to understand the truth. Again, I keep going back to, to Lincoln and the emancipation because it's probably the only thing we can really connect ourselves with. He declares them free. They are free. They can go back and live as slaves, or they can walk away and live as freemen. It's their choice. Christ has set his people free from their sin. Now, is it a process? Yeah, I'll give you that. But again, justification, sanctification start at the same time. You cannot have one without the other. One writer says this. He says, in the unregenerate life, the life in Adam, sin and death reigned. Whereas in the redeemed life, the life of Christ, righteousness and eternal life reigns. There are no other alternatives, no neutral ground here. All men are either mastered by sin, to which they are under the lordship of Satan, or they're mastered by righteousness, which is to say they're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. As Matthew Henry observed, if we would, to know, if we would know which of these two families we belong, we must inquire to which of these two masters do we yield our obedience. Right? That, that's, a, that's a great statement. Who, who are we obeying? So again, the issue is not so much what does a man say, the real issue is, how does a man live? To whom do they belong? You can see it by the pattern of their life. So I would suggest, again, we not listen to what men say. We watch what they do. Look at their life. Observe their actions. Right? You all know, I guarantee you, you all know people who say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, yet they live their lives no different than any other unbeliever you come in contact with. They have been deceived. Now, you can get upset at me, or they can get upset at me to say that they've been deceived. They're not really who they say they are. The Bible says we should examine ourselves, and what I'm doing is offering grace again, because God offers that, uh, that we should stop and not find yourself in Matthew chapter 7, where there's a whole group of people who thought they were going to heaven, and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Somehow that whole concept seems anathema in the time in which we live, because anybody who says they're a believer in Jesus just automatically gets the stamp of approval. In the Bible, Paul says, no, what master are you obeying? We'll know by how we see you live your life. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to watch you. Again, Paul asked the question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And the answer is overwhelmingly we can't. The man who is under grace is a slave of obedience that results in righteousness. And righteousness, that, the righteousness only comes from the new birth. And when Paul talks about being a slave of obedience which results in righteousness... He's not just speaking of a moral and spiritual obligation. He's not saying, look, believers, they really need to admire righteousness. He's not saying believers really should desire righteousness, practice righteousness. They should. We should. But he's saying and teaching a reality that every Christian, every genuine believer, by divine act of new creation, is made a slave of righteousness, and they can't be anything else. For instance... 1 Corinthians 1.30 By his doing, by God's doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins so we can live life in misery and time and hopefully stumble to the finish line, but we're going to go to glory, praise God. Well, I praise God we're going to go to glory, but we're not stumbling 
to the finish line. We're standing up like men, right, Lloyd-Jones. We're going to listen to the sergeant major and present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, not keep serving our sinful flesh that wants to do the wrong thing. By God's doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's exactly what uh, John says in his first letter, 1 John 3 and 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. And again, the, the verb there is habitually practices sin. No one who is born of God habitually practices sin because his seed, God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. He cannot sin habitually. That's the context. By this, listen, 1 John 3 and 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now let me go back. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Okay, do you know what that means? It means the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. The habitual bent of their life. Didn't I use an analogy last time that said, here's a tree, and I remember on the coast, you know, where I grew up in California, the wind's always blowing, and the trees are always like this. They're always bent, right? The bent, the pressure of, of the wind, the pressure of the wind of the person of the Holy Spirit and the person who is redeemed, genuinely saved, is going to move them towards righteousness, not towards unrighteousness. It's not neutral, straight up, where the wind just doesn't blow constantly, blows from all different directions. No, there's a constant bent. I didn't say perfection. I said the bent of your life. Colossians 1.21, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. I mean, this is stand-up, a round of applause for God because this is what God is doing in our life declared us not guilty, positively righteous, and in the active process of making us conform to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Process of moving us that direction. So again, the person who claims with their mouth to be a Christian, they have to have a life that is marked by righteousness. The old patterns of their life, the old sinful patterns of life, don't characterize a true believer because now they are in obedience to God and living righteously because they are a genuinely justified, truly justified person. There has to be that evidence. Now, again, we can stumble and fall, and we do, because we're all, you know, again, chapter 7, Paul talks about it. We stumble and fall, right? But sinful disobedience will not dominate the Christian's life because they have a new nature, a new holy nature, a righteous nature, given to them by Christ. First John 1, 6, If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. Right? The man who is under grace is in union with Christ to live a life of unrighteousness that he once lived in the past. He can't. That, that's been forever taken away. Look at verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that you were slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So here's the application to the analogy of slavery that Paul just presented. Here's the great change that has taken place in the believer's life. In fact, Paul's going to lay out three more principles, three major principles that define for us exactly what a Christian is. Principle number one, he says a Christian is a person who's undergone a great transformation or a great change in their life. Now, look very carefully at the words and listen to what Paul says. A person who's a Christian is a person who's undergone a great transformation or a great change. Verse 17, 
Thanks be to God that though you were, right? You were slaves of sin, you became. You were slaves of sin, but you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed. You were, you became, right? Once what was true of you is no longer true of you because there's been a transformation. So again, in Christ, you're a completely different person. You're an entirely different person in an entirely different position from where you once were. That's the idea behind you were, you became. So again, every one of us, before we were born again, every one of us, before we came to Christ, if you've come to Christ, we're a slave of sin. Born sinners, enemies of God, by nature, children of God's wrath. It doesn't matter if you were born in the church. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. It doesn't matter if you were sprinkled as a baby one time or two times or whatever. It doesn't matter if you made a profession of faith in your youth group and you rededicated your already rededicated life and were never saved. Until you're born again, you're the slaves of the one whom you obey. And for every one of us coming into the world, we were slaves of sin. Again, the Bible acknowledges no such category as freedom of the will. Luther had it right. It's bondage of the will. The Bible presents the unregenerate man and his will in complete opposition to God. The unbeliever hates God. The unbeliever will not subject himself to God. He will not subject himself to the law of God. Romans 8 and 7 says he's not even able to do so. So no unbeliever has the free will to choose Christ because we're slaves, not free. And slaves are again in bondage. Their hearts, their minds, their will are imprisoned by sin. They are in bondage to sin. That's who we once were, past tense, in Adam. Therefore, every man coming into this world is in need of a great change, a great transformation. We all need to be born again. We all need to be born from above, right? Uh, John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Coming into the world, we're all dead in trespasses and sins. We need to be made alive together with Christ. We, we need to be made new creations in Christ. We need to have old things pass away and all new things come. Again, that's you were, you became. So again, a Christian man is somebody who's gone, undergone a great transformation. They are no longer who they once were because they've been converted, regenerated. Once spiritually dead, they've been made now spiritually alive. Again, you were and you became. Right? So principle uh, number one, there's a, a person who's a Christian has undergone a great transformation or change. Principle number two, there's been a complete change of ownership for the Christian. A complete change of ownership for the Christian. So again, by nature, we're all born slaves of sin. That's who we were, we were because no man's born in neutrality. Romans 5.10, we are enemies of God, right? Nobody's born free. All people born in the world are born slaves of sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you know what the word all means in the Greek, right? Romans 3 and 9, all are under sin. Verse 10, as it's written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Every man by nature born into this world is born a slave to sin. No one's free. Everybody coming into the world is a slave of sin with a nature being a child of God's wrath under the dominion of darkness, under the power of the prince of the air, which is Satan, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. There is no such thing as freedom. All men know, apart from Christ, is bondage. All they know is slavery. And again, every man, every woman, every child born in the world is born a slave of sin. 
But the Christian's been changed. The Christian's been changed. There's been a transformation and a transformation of ownership. Look at it again, verse 17. Thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed. Verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There again is that phrase, you were, you became. So again, for the Christian, there's a great transformation, a great exchange, a great change. Number two, there's been a complete change of ownership from being a slave to sin now to being a slave of righteousness. And the third point is answering the question, how does it all happen? How does it occur? How does this great transformation occur? How does this owner change of ownership occur? And Paul says there, there's two agencies at work. There's an immediate agent, and then there's an ultimate agent. An immediate agent and an ultimate agent. What's the immediate agent? Well, it's right there in the text. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. Here it is. To that form of teaching to which you're committed. The immediate agent is the form of teaching. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. Now, obedient, you became obedient, is a, an aorist tense pointing to a specific point in time. You became obedient from the heart. Heart always speaks of the issues of the center of, of, of human life, the center of knowledge, the center of thinking, wisdom, intellect. You became obedient from the heart speaks that at some point, a specific point, when you became from disobedient to obedient in the heart, speaks of that radical transformation. It took place at a specific point in the past. Again, if there's not a radical transformation of your life before Christ to now when you claim to be in Christ, if you can't see that, if other people can't see that in you, if they can't see that change, the fact that there has been a change of masters over you that has taken place in your life, then it's very possible that indeed you're not saved. If you can't see it and other people around you can't see it, it's very possible that you're indeed not saved. You're not who you claim to be. Because there can't be any more radical transformation or change than being changed from a slave to sin than becoming a slave of righteousness. Because salvation is so much more than just saying the words, I accept Jesus. James chapter 2, the demons accept Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. We're talking about transformation that God in his grace brings. He says, you became obedient. And again, the verb's in the passive tense, right? A passive voice, which means this is something that you're not doing. This is something that has happened to you. You have been acted at this point of transformation. You have been acted on by God. God is the, the agent. Right? This is something that God is doing in your life because of justification, because of uniting you with the person of Christ. Christ, God has taken you out of the dominion of sin and death, and he's transferred you over into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's God who's unlocked the chains that once held you captive in the grip of sin, and it is God who is delivering you from that stronghold of sin and rebellion. And it's God who's immediately producing in you a life of obedience. Again, if there's no transformation, if there's no obvious change of ownership, then there's no evidence that you are genuinely saved. Because again, someone who is saved, someone who's born again from above, he has a new heart, a new disposition, a will that has changed from disobedience to obedience towards God. A will that at one time was at enmity with God, but now loves God. A, a will that once hated Christ, but now loves Christ. A, a will that had nothing to do with God or Christ, and now wants nothing to do with sin and rebellion that sent Christ to the cross. 
right? You became obedient from the heart, right? That's what God does. That's God's active work in your life. That's, that's the change that he provides. And again, it's a matter of fact. It's a matter of reality. Again, Paul is not asking you to do anything. In the Greek, these are just all indicative. These are just statements of fact. Paul's just saying, this is the truth. This is the truth. This is the truth. This is the truth. Right? Every true believer from the heart has an internal desire to obey the word of God. Right? To keep the word of God. To love the Savior. You once loved sin, but now you love righteousness. You once could care less about the Bible, but now you love the Bible. You want to read it on a daily basis. You never thought before about sinning. You just sinned. And you sinned and you sinned with impunity. But now you sin, it brings conviction. It brings hatred in your heart. Because you're lying against the truth of who you now are in Christ. That's one way that you can tell if you indeed have been born again, if you hate your sin. It's not the struggle with your sin that says, well, maybe I'm not saved. No, it's that struggle with sin that shows there's actually life in you. Because dead in trespasses and sins means, you know, <laughs> means exactly what it says in the Greek, dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do anything except sin. Now the struggle is part of the reality that life is in you. Where did that life come from? Not you. It came from God. It came from Christ, your union with Christ. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed. The form of teaching. Dedicated is the word. The teaching that is taught, the doctrine. He's saying you became conformed or you became obedient from the heart because of divine truth. Not religious tradition. Not human philosophies. In short, it's the gospel. It's all the truth about who we are. It's all the truth about God, God's mercy, God's kindness, who we are in Christ, what God has done for us to reconcile us to himself. Now, it's interesting. He says that form of teaching, that word form, tupas, means marked or caused by a strike or a blow. It really speaks to the idea of uh, an indentation caused by a heavy instrument striking something else, like a rod or a hammer, Right? Uh, and it would have been brought down on a subject or an object and made a big dent. So in essence, what Paul is saying by using that word form of teaching, that form of divine truth, he's saying the word of God, the gospel, has hammered or made a deep, permanent indentation into the life of the believer. That form of teaching. That form of teaching has left a deep imprint on the person's soul, changing his heart, changing his life, changing the direction of their life changing their master you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed the words paradidomai and it gives means to give into the hands of another or over to one's power paul's saying look by the mercy of god there's been a great transformation in the believer's life again there's been a great transformation of ownership the immediate agent that has brought this along is the word of god the preaching of the word of god the reading of the word of god the understanding of the gospel and it's true that faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. It's true that the word of God has been delivered to the believer. But when Paul says to that form of teaching into which you were committed, I think Paul might be taking it just a little step further than just, yes, faith comes by hearing. I think he might be saying that the true believer has been delivered into God's word. A true believer has been delivered into God's word. That when God makes the new spiritual creation of a believer... He casts that person into the mold of divine truth. He changes us from the inside out. Right? We willfully obey the word of God. Right? Then we become more conformed to the word of God, that truth. We live out the gospel. We look more and more like Christ. We submit ourselves to Christ. We submit ourselves to his word. 
we show more and more evidence of the fact that we belong to him and now we have the person of the indwelling person of the holy spirit who has written the word that we have in our hands and that word bends us more delivers us into the word of god conforms us more it's continually transforming us the word is transforming us the holy spirit is transforming us again conforming us more and more into the image and the likeness of christ now the immediate agent is the word and i said there was an ultimate agent you already know what that is right it's god himself first uh, what four words five words right thanks be to god but thanks be to god that though you were slaves of sin you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed having been freed from sin this is god's work it's all god's work god is the one who makes the transformation possible God is the one who brings about the complete change of ownership. God is the one who is in kindness. In his kindness takes us from those who were slaves of sin. He frees us from that sin and we become slaves of righteousness. Again, we were, we became. Right? We were slaves of sin, we became slaves of righteousness. All because of the mercy, the grace of God in Christ. Again, none of us can do it ourselves. It's what God does in us. It's only something God can do. So you were, you became is a great definition of a Christian. You were, you became. So again, the question is, whose slave are you? Because you've got to serve somebody, as the great theologian Dylan said. Right? Whose slave are you? I'm going to close in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for this time in your word. Uh, we're thankful for the great, wonderful truths, the profound truths that Paul just keeps proclaiming here, one after another, under the power of the Holy Spirit who uh, ultimately pinned it. I'm going to close with the words of a hymn that says, Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransom healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. Alleluia, alleluia, praise the everlasting King. And that's what we do. We pray in Christ's name, amen.